Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hello and welcome to Caged In Presents Coppola Connections, as ever brought to you by the Breadcrumbs Collective and hosted by me, Petros Patsilovas. We are here once again for another episode of what we are dubbing Schwartzman's Summer. This is our second outing with our summer boy, Jason Schwartzman, and the film we'll be looking at this week it's one of his villainous turns. Maybe his only villainous turn. If I've got that wrong, please don't hesitate to get in touch at CagedInPod and all the socials or CagedInPod at gmail.com. In Edgar Wright's 2010 Scott Pilgrim versus the World, this is episode 48 as well. Oof. We're getting we're ever closer to 50. I don't think I'm going to do anything special for 50. I think I'm going to be deep in... Schwartzman Summer for when episode 50 comes. But if you're new to this podcast, what we do here when we're not kind of basking in the glories of Jason Schwartzman, well, we're still going to be doing that anyway, is we watch every single film in the collective Coppola family filmography to determine are they the greatest film family of all time. So over this five week period, we're using Jason Schwartzman as a case study. Does he alone help? Coppola family become one of the greatest film families of all time his output does this film on its own help to uh state that case and as ever I'm joined by a guest and um we've got a return guest first time on Coppola Connection to have somebody come back and have another shake at the stick to see if they agree with their old opinion whether the Coplas were the greatest film family of all time um, I won't say whether my guest, the one, the only, Matt Brothers, whether he said they were or they weren't from the last one, you can go listen to that. It's um, my chat about Edward with Matt. It's fantastic. And yeah, there's a few questions I say to Matt, hey, you get another go of answering this answering this question, but they're the ones in the back end. Nothing, nothing up front. We kind of have a, a very Jason Schwartzman-centric chat up front and it is a lot of fun both of us were kind of sweating our absolute faces off whilst having this chat so 
I don't know. We probably don't get to everything that maybe we wanted to, but that's always the way. Me and Mac probably could have chatted for absolute hours, but instead you get this chat that you have right here, which is still plenty of fun and spoiler-filled. Obviously, we can't talk about all of the seven deadly X's in this film uh, without spoiling something, especially considering that Jason Schwartzman's character Gideon Graves is the final deadly seven, the, the seventh <laughs> deadly X. So, yeah, he's uh, we we spoil this film, and it's but it's like a lot of fun nonetheless. Not that spoiling stuff doesn't make it can be fun. All my talk about it's really hot now. Whilst I'm recording this, I think I'm losing my mind as I record it. So. Uh, yeah, with all of that out of the way, I guess all that's left to do is to um, fend off some seven deadly X's as we make some Coppola connections. Welcome to week two of Schwartzman Summer. This week we're going to be bumbling about Toronto, getting to know the music scene, getting caught up in love triangles and battling some seven deadly exes as we look at Edgar Wright's 2010 film adaptation, Brian Lee O'Malley's graphic novel series, Scott Pilgrim vs. The World. The film is written by Edgar Wright and Michael Bacall and stars Michael Cera, Mary Elizabeth Winstead, Ellen Wong, Kieran Culking, Anna Kendrick, Chris Evans, Alison Brie, and today's Coppola Connection, our very own summer boy, Jason Schwartzman. Joining me to battle the Coppola family once again, and to see if they remain champs as the greatest film family of all time, or if his feelings have changed and he's looking for a new love, is Spocklighter, Sudden Double Deeper, is Paul Dano Okea and soon-to-be Greer leader, the busiest man in podcasting, <laughs> Matt Brothers. How are you, Matt? Hello, sir. Thank you so much for having me back. It's great to be here. Sweltering. I mean, this really is Schwartzman summer. We are both feeling the heat right now. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. We're, we're a couple of sweaty summer boys. We're, we're, <laughs> we're just sweaty summer boys. We're, we're, we're juxtaposing it with talking about the, ch the chilly uh, Toronto winter that is uh, Scott Pilgrim versus the world. So it's kind of a bit of a... I had lots of jealousy whilst watching this film, like kind of like being like, it looks so cold and lovely and I'm so hot and sweaty. Yeah, Christ, anything to be back over there right now, my God. So Matt, how have you been since we, since we, since we last spoke on the podcast? Obviously, yeah, I mentioned that there is a, um, you were, you were Paul Danoing when we last spoke, but. Yeah, I mean, I looked, and was it how, was it this long ago when we chatted for Ed Wood? Was it about this time last year? Possibly. And I'm only going by, going yeah. by that because of our Skype core history. Because yes. when I booted this thing up, I had a look, and I was like, it was not August. I swear it was like <laughs> a few months ago. But I looked, and obviously there was two calls quite close together from our, our first attempt at Ed Wood, and then the second uh, go-around. But yeah, since then, it would have been... 
um, the back end of season three of Is Paul Dana Okay would have been out. All of season four, which was where we're up to now. So we're currently um, have done all his stuff, bar three or four little hanger-ons and his new projects yet to come out. So yes, what we're doing is taking a mini break from Paul to allow those new things to come out so we have enough for another big full season. And we're starting our, much like yourself, um, heading into Copa Connections within Caged In, we're, we're branching out into the first of a few mini-series we're hoping to do on different character actors um, in the same kind of zone as Paul Dana, with the first being the wonderful Judy Greer. So our, our fifth season of the show will be focused on, on her. We're going to look at eight new features um, that hopefully highlight some of the films that she has a really big part to play in because she is notoriously the co-star, the best friend, the mum. Uh, <laughs> we're trying to dig a little deeper and uh, go beyond your Ant-Men and your Jurassic Worlds uh, to try and find the ones where she really shines. So yeah, recording starts on that very soon. Yeah, because I obviously like when when you announced it, I did like a little, and, and I think I've co- like I've covered Jurassic World on the podcast and obviously uh, covered adaptation on the podcast which are the mm. only two films i think she features in that have any kind of relation to the coppola family <laughs> and her her kind of appearance in adaptation is literally like a blink in your miss it like uh waitress who gets weirded out by charlie kaufman yeah and then, yeah it's, and it's hard to try and track down the films because she's got so many on her on her filmography that it's like what someone's in here that sound good and just looking at the ones you don't know it's like well she might just be a one scene part in this and we'll be just left chatting about some weird film from the late 90s or whatever it is uh being like well we, we did our Greer's chat within three minutes now it's just the rest of it so trying to go with ones where she's top billing which is very rare uh, on the poster which is also quite rare um and a few other main touchstones that a lot of people uh know anyway uh, or that i'm hoping to discover nice i i like yeah i like that you're taking that feels like a nicer approach than, than me like kind of rolling the dice on films and going yeah i'll talk about like i recently discussed big eyes which is also be released for uh, schwarzman summer and i totally forgotten how little jason schwarzman is in that film Shit, like, he's in big eyes he has like this two is the, scenes the he plays, yeah he plays the um oh, yeah he plays like a gallery owner who's very sniffy about mm about the uh about water and Catherine Keane's work like and yeah he's got maybe like two scenes he's kind of they've, <laughs> they've gone who 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 plays kind of a lovable prick in films and it's like Jason's our guy like they kind of, <laughs> uh, they kind of called him in so that's it I mean like I mean the dream is for someone like Judy Greer uh, and even Paul Dano to have to have their 127 hours or lock or something where it's just them for the whole thing to make up for all these years of, of bit parts. <laughs> and I guess there's that fear with Paul Dano as well, obviously that he's directed a film, like will he just get the bug of doing that and then announce like, this is me guys. I'm not oh, going to yeah, be like, movies like a, anymore. Like a uh, John Peel type now where yes. he's like, I'm done with acting, playing, Trying, you know, trying to audition for the poop in the Mojo movie was a step too far. It's just my own movies now. <laughs> <laughs> Amazing. Well, yeah, we were talking about uh, small parts for actors, but um, what would have been? <laughs> hello. Yeah, hello. What would have been the? What would have been the first film you would have seen Jason Schwartzman? Was it a small part or was it a big part? Was it, <laughs> well, I think it technically part? would have been a small part because thinking about it, I mean, 
Rushmore would have been would have been the film, but I think I came to that. I mean, because that is his debut, isn't it? But I would have come to that maybe a little later, not 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 a long time later. But I probably definitely would have seen him in Freaks and Geeks first. Um, the one episode of that he's in from the year two thousand, so a couple of years after uh, Rushmore. But that was definitely just a little guest spot in an episode of that. But I think I definitely saw Freaks and Geeks before I saw Rushmore, which is strange. So yeah, probably there. Did, did he did he make an impact when you saw him? Were you like, who's that kind of like? I don't know. Yeah, he's he's very kid. just Max Fishery, but a, a couple years older and uh, changed a lot in those two years. <laughs> and it was even then, I think you know, oh yeah, this guy, this this guy's something. Because there's a few people in Freaks and Geeks who show up for like one scene. Mm-hmm. Some some that you were already kind of like Ben Foster is in, I think the pilot or at least one episode. Um, and yeah, Schwartzman's another one. Yeah, that's a that that is a fascinating show because that's like kind of one of those nexus points for so many careers, right? It's like mm. like Jason Segel, um, James Franco. I mean, yeah, the main cast like, alone, my god. Yeah, 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 yeah. There's like all the, like Seth Rogen, and then like you kind of figure yeah, out. Lizzie Kaplan's in it, and then and then even like directors like Paul Feig, I think, like directed a lot of that role. Was kind of like the showrunner on that, so it's like yeah. Um, such yes, his thing. Yeah, you've got um, Shia LaBeouf is in an early episode as well. As well. David Cromholtz, uh, Ben Stiller pops up, um, Rashida Jones. Uh, yeah, there's, there's. I love that show. It's fantastic. Yes, yeah, yeah. Oh, maybe I'll have to cover it now. We'll cover that one episode that Schwartzman's <laughs> yeah. in. He's there. Uh, that, that, that doesn't look, because obviously his TV work, like, I was kind of thinking about this recently, that, like, Cage might be the most prolific within credits, but like mm. Schwartzman might pip him to having the most screen time in the whole of the Coppola family because he's done like multiple seasons or like, do you know what I mean? He's done a season of Fargo. He's done yeah, like, um, multiple seasons of Mozart in the Jungle. He did multiple seasons of Bored to Death and stuff like mm-hmm. that. Have you checked out much of Jason Schwartzman's TV work at all? Yeah, Bored to Death. Big big fan of Bored to Death. I was watching that when it was airing back in the day. Um, yeah, and just feels like a real odd one now because it's one that I don't think enough people talk about. And that main trio of him, Zach Galifianakis and Ted Danson, obviously Galifianakis went on to star in his F- uh, FX show Baskets, which was really good. And Ted Danson went on to be in The Good Place as well. So it felt like that core trio obviously were already very well known, the three of them, before Bored to Death. And even since then, most of them have all gone on to have even more sort of TV success as well. But yeah, I really like that. And I think, if I'm remembering rightly, it kind of ends on a cliffhanger, doesn't it, at the end of season three? Or at least something isn't resolved Yes, I think without it... saying quite what that is. And it's like, fuck. <laughs> yeah, I think it was cancelled, right? It was that, mm-hmm. I remember it coming out at that time, you had that, like HBO seemed to have just like, chucked a load of money at different creators to kind of like make these different shows and there was how to make it in america as well that show that had yeah like kid cuddy in it and it's kind of about these young guys in the fashion industry and i kind of remember being like really into them and then like other ones kind of took off and like and then others just kind of like they went nah like jimmy you know I mean? it's like you can imagine there was a there was a meeting it's like we're we gonna go over further with bored to death or girls and it's like uh we're going with girls like <laughs> Yeah, yeah, this being HBO as well for all these, yeah. And um, but it feels like I feel I think the show that maybe hits the tone of Bored to Death closest now is um, Only Murders in the Building. Yes, because again, again, you have like a, a, a core trio who are all movie stars. It's New York based. Uh, you know, it's it's sort of mystery focused, 
um, yeah, I think that's the successor. And I'd love to see Schwartzman pop up in that, actually. Um, but yeah, with, with Cage, do you think he's going to be someone who does any prestige TV at some point? Because well, he really, ha- when I think about Cage, he really hasn't done any TV at all, has he? He's never, no. He signed on to do a um, an adaptation, like a, a miniseries of an Owen Collier novel. So the guy mm. who wrote Artemis Fowl. It's written like a kind of adult fantasy novel called High Fire. And Nicolas Cage will be playing a, um, a, whis- a, a, a vodka-loving dragon who lives in the New Orleans Bayou. <laughs> And I've started, I've started listening to the book and it's like quite fascinating. I haven't like got to the point yet where like the kind of plot is starting to unravel. Like the first few chapters, it's a lot of like character introduction and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that, that will be interesting. It's kind of dipping his toe at least because it's a voice role. And I, I'm not sure if they'll be doing any, I don't know, they might be doing like motion capture with Cage. I'm not sure how the dragon will look. <laughs> or anything like that if it's a big dragon if it's a smaller dragon i'm not sure like but yeah some of the stuff that he gets to do like there's a there's a monologue in the first chapter from the the dragon talking about like how lonely he is like uh how he <laughs> how he got on facebook for a while and then lord of the rings fanatics started to get a bit suspicious so he had to ditch facebook and how he's <laughs> thought about having sex with an alligator because they might be the closest like relative to a dragon, so like yeah, I could imagine. I'm excited to see Cage kind of uh, get his teeth into into a, a weird role like that. But as for like kind of Showtime HBO stuff, I don't think no, he's, there's nothing on the docket yet. Obviously, came yeah, no. With- well, I I kind of hope Cage returns. I don't think it's confirmed or anything uh in the spider-verse sequel because of course we have schwartzman as the villain for that yes 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 there is and and, and off off schwartzman's tv work as well there is a connection to um star trek as well in in the fact that very tangential well no quite tangentially a little bit tangentially in that jonathan ames follow-up series to bored to death blunt talk Mm -hmm. stars patrick stewart and um Jason Schwartzman is like a, I think not not sure like a regular on the show, but at least has like a kind of multi multi episode appearances in the show. Yeah, yeah. Enough so that there's like gifs of those two together. And I'm, I I I uh, I reached out to Liam recently and went, "When we do it, when we do in the crossover episode, <laughs> <laughs> that's it. That's the uh, spotlight on screen episode for Blunt Talk. Uh, <laughs> perfect, <laughs> amazing. So, um, obviously, yeah. Um, well, let's talk a little bit about Rushmore. Like, obviously, that would have been the first major thing you would have seen Schwartzman. Mm. What, like, what were your impressions of him as an actor when you saw him in that? I think it's a real star-making turn. Like, it's one of those ones, like, you know, Wes Anderson has this entire catalogue of characters. He's someone quite like Tarantino who can just really create instantly iconic kind of characters. And I think a lot of people kind of compress and conflict, like, a lot of them together because his style is so um, uh, consistent through all his work. But I think Rush, um, Max Fisher and that really does kind of stand out and uh, it's it's one of the, the greatest kind of like young debuts because it's like, I guess you wouldn't call it a child performance at that point. He was like eight, 17, 18 or something. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's one that feels very much like it has this energy 
that he brings to all his later work in his later years that's there right from the word go. <laughs> and uh, outside of that, you know, I hadn't seen much more of his earlier work until you get to stuff like Marie Antoinette and then The Darjeeling Limited, which is probably still my favorite Anderson film, I think, purely um, because of that central trio in that. And I think Schwartzman's a, a key part of that kind of trifecta of him, Owen Wilson, Adrian Brody, and they all bring so much so much heart to those to those brothers in that, like so much more than um, a lot of his other stuff, I think. I think what's fascinating about that film is it feels like Wes Anderson's most personal film, but it's not his life that he's drawing upon so much. It seems yeah. to be, because it seems to be Roman Coppola. Like, because if you, if you look at Adrian Brody's character in that, and like with the kind of, the, the, the big sunglasses that belong to his dad, and then mm. you kind of look at pictures of Francis Ford Coppola, like yeah. with the big glasses, and like the fact of three siblings, this this feeling of that they have to match up to their father and stuff like that. It's yeah, kind of well, like, I mean, yeah, because Schwartzman's co-writer on that as well, and I reckon he put a lot of himself into yeah. into his his character Jack there. So I think between the three of them, um, and Owen Wilson, there's there's so much of him in there because you know he 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 suffered from terrible depression he had some suicide attempts didn't he in, in his life and there's a lot of that baked into the character so yeah you're right i think it feels really personal one of his most kind of real films because it's so much reliant on i mean obviously you have the train set which they do do a lot of kind of the classic anderson kind of cross-sectiony stuff with it but not as much as as like a um, life aquatic but then all the location stuff in, in India is amazing and I think you know I love I love his later work as well by the time you get to Grand Budapest and uh, and uh, French Dispatch which I really loved but that's pure like storybook uh, two-dimensional um, in the planes of, of the dimension of what you're looking at whereas Darjeeling really feels like the last one where it's like yeah these these people are out there it's the prime example of a filmmaker I think kind of having a flop and having to like go back to some basics a bit like kind mm. of let scale things down and like it's, uh, you kind of wish it upon a lot of directors sometimes you're like oh you just been given these massive sandboxes to play in and you've kind of you've almost like lost yourself whereas like yeah where your life aquatic failed like where's answers like, oh shit like i haven't got that 10 million dollar budget that i had on that like I've got to go back to like a yeah, $4 yeah. million dollar budget or something. I mean, he obviously had Fantastic Mr. Fox in between that and uh, Moonrise Kingdom, but I remember Moonrise Kingdom feeling like his comeback in terms of a live action film. Mm -hmm. But there's only like five years between that and Darjeeling. Um, but you've got seven years between Grand Budapest and uh, French Dispatch in terms of live action. You've got Isle of Dogs nestled in the middle there as well. But that felt much more like a like a bigger gap. And I kind of like, in a way... The French Dispatch got delayed so much because of COVID to 2021. Because now it means you know he's he's shot two more films. Basically, he's got Asteroid City and this Henry Sugar thing coming out. Um, so we could be looking at you know two new live action Wes Anderson films in the space of a year, perhaps. Um, and that's pretty exciting as well. It's absolutely insane, isn't it? I think I think the the, the Coppola family and Nicolas Cage are going to keep me doing this podcast to my dying <laughs> day. Uh, um so what i mean yeah you're, you're not having to put pause on a season to wait for him to get make more stuff day no uh, <laughs> no no no, no. Uh, yeah I've, I've i think you mentioned that online uh 
recently and I, I was like oh yeah no i think nick cage taking a little bit of a break maybe stuff won't be coming out till... yeah oh no wait <laughs> yeah yeah then looked then looked at his docket for this year and it's like you, yeah. oh no we're, nearly, we're over halfway and apparently we've got four movies coming out like for the rest of this year or something yeah like i don't i don't know why the sort of clip that immediately popped in my head is sean and the dead when they're looking at the letterbox <laughs> just memeify that and be like any any nick cage films out there no oh no wait there they are <laughs> it's like five <laughs> It is classic, waiting for a bus and four four comes at once in the cage of a Nick Cage film. Um, so what what would have been the last Jason Schwartzman film you would have seen? We'll touch on it briefly. Uh, yeah, looking now, probably, well, French Dispatch in terms of what came out, but I the Sparks Brothers as well. Like That's one I caught. I didn't catch that when it came out. So I think it's on Netflix now. So I think I only saw that two or three months ago. So that's probably the last. Um, and he pops up in there, of course, that documentary. I love um, I, I, I love that. I love that there's the reference because Sparks have a song in Rad, the film that his dad produced and Tony ah. Shire's in. And I think like he retells that story on like in the documentary. And yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I, I love that aspect to it. And like I don't know. It did it did somewhat feel like that documentary is Edgar yeah. going, What cool what what cool famous people <laughs> do I know? Like J- yeah, Jason, do you have any stories about Sparks? He's like, Well actually and he's mm-hmm. like Get in this, get in this sound studio. We need to record it. Come on, come on, let's go, let's go. Well, yeah, I mean, he's barely in French Dispatch. I think he's got like a couple scenes, but yeah, I think one that will keep kind of returning to, and we did cover on Sunday Deep, I think last Christmas is Klaus. You know, his, oh. his voice work in that because that made me think. I really do love his voice, and looking through his filmography now, it's only really Fantastic Mr. Fox, uh, my entire high school sinking into the sea, which is very good, um, and Klaus. And now sing too, like sort of additional voices he's down as. Who knows? So mainly only them. But I'm so glad that Klaus is the one that has him up front and center as the lead because it's just so gorgeous that thing. Yeah, he does. He does a stellar job and gets to like uh, draw upon. I think it is like that thing that he's kind of been drawing upon the Max Fisher isms of his career ever since. Do you know what I mean? He play, he does yeah. play like these little pricks. <laughs> really well and it's nice in that one that it's a little prick who has like a redemptive arc like uh, a film like listen up philip for instance mm. I, I i i really enjoy it but it's like he's uh he starts off as a prick continues to be a prick at the end you know what he's still a prick <laughs> <laughs> but yeah you should resurrect schwartzman summer for one night only come christmas for the the, the schwartzman winter klaus special Klaus has been covered. Klaus was our Christmas special last year. Where, uh, oh shit! Yeah, yeah. I'm not going to announce. I'm not. It's boiling hot. I'm not announcing what's for this Christmas. But I've, already, <laughs> I've already got it lined up. Uh, <laughs> so, what would be your favourite Jason Schwartzman film before we get into talking about? Get to talk about. You know what? I think it's probably a toss-up between, as as mentioned, Darjeeling Limited and Fantastic Mr. Fox because they're probably joint my top favorite wes anderson's anyway and he's in both of them um but then also today's film scott pilgrim i think that's one as we'll get into that i've been obsessed with for ages i always return to it and i just think he's perfectly cast as that hipster douche gideon um and even even though scott pilgrim's very much ensemble film he's one that really stands out plus great to see him in a out and out villain role with uh fight scenes as it was um to see people like Michael Sarah doing the same thing. <laughs> All right. Well, let's talk about Scott Pilgrim versus the world. But before we do, let's hear the trailer. 
what's up? I'll leave you alone forever now. You know this one girl with hair like this? Yes, that's Ramona Flowers. She's out of your league. You know her? Tell me now. She just moved here, got a job at Amazon. I have to order something really cool. Scott, are you waiting for the package you just ordered? Maybe. Scott Pilgrim? Hi, I was thinking about asking you out, but then I realized how stupid that would be. That's okay, you should just sign for this, all right? So do you want to go out sometime? I say yes, we sign for your damn package. So yeah, eight o'clock? Come to this Battle of the Bands thing. You have a band. Yeah, we're terrible. One, two, three, one! Mr. Pilgrim! I'm Ramona's first evil ex-boyfriend. What? Wait, we're fighting over Ramona? Didn't you get my email explaining the situation? I skimmed it. Mm-mm. What was that all about? If we're gonna date, you may have to defeat my seven evil exes. So what you're saying is we are dating? I guess. Does that mean we can make out? Sure. Scott Pilgrim! Prepare to feel the wrath of the League of Evil Exes. Ramona dated twins. At the same time. <sighs> If you want something bad, you have to fight for it. Step up your game, Scott. Combo! Break out the L word. Lesbian? The other L word. Lesbians? What are you doing? Getting a life. You want to fight me for her? Why on earth would you want to do that? Because I'm in love with her. Scott Pilgrim versus the world. Maybe next time we don't date the girl with 11 evil ex-boyfriends. Okay. Oh, that's not that bad. So, Matt, can you tell us what Scott Pilgrim versus the world is all about? Yeah, well, this is the story of 22-year-old slacker Scott Pilgrim from Toronto, Canada, who is a bassist in... uh, uh, and sort of underground garage band called Sex Bob Om. And uh, he's in a bit of an early midlife crisis as he's dating a 17-year-old. Um, and he kind of stumbles upon uh, the girl of his dreams and uh, finds himself tasked with defeating her seven evil ex- exes uh, in, in Mortal Kombat um, to, win, to win her heart. And it's based on a series of graphic novels and it takes a lot of inspiration from from the sort of indie scene of Toronto and video games and, and retro stuff. And yeah, it's a real, real amalgamation. And I think it's uh, quite a tough uh, sell, quite a tough <laughs> adaptation. And I think the way it's come out um, is a testament to all the talent involved. Yeah, because it's a film like, so yeah, the budget for this was $60 million and the box office return was 49.3. So I'd imagine for Universal, that probably wouldn't have been... <laughs> If this if this was Warner Brothers in 2022, this would have been shelved. <laughs> let, let me tell you that they would have been they would have been washing their hands. They would have uh, they, they, they would have been tax write off for this film. Uh, but um, what's your yeah? What's your kind of relationship with it? Did you see it at the time? Were you kind of 
yeah tell us a bit about you yeah i i got i got really obsessed with this really quickly because it all coincided with when i first moved to london uh with an ex of mine and a couple of friends and i think i just heard about it first with it being edgar wright's next film having you know obsessively watched everything he'd done um and so I immediately started picking up the graphic novels and it was really well timed in that, you know, the series of six books, the sixth book was coming out right before the release of the film. So the release of the final graphic novel, the movie, the soundtrack, the game, it all kind of coalesced in this summer of 2010 uh, <laughs> before it got uh, trounced at the box office by the Expendables. Uh, <laughs> but I remember like, uh, yeah, reading through these graphic novels and I think that's where my love really comes from because I love the comics so much. Um, and uh, yeah, the, the, like the art style, the humor, the story it tells across those six books is, is great. And it's and the more you kind of read it, you go, yes, Edgar Wright really is a perfect kind of person to adapt this, especially the kind of energy he brings from stuff like Space, especially this kind of uh, like early 20s um, uh, up and coming group of friends living uh -huh. in a city, that kind of vibe um, mixed with the hyperkinetic energy of of uh of like musicals it's been in called upon because there's all the performances of the band so it's like a musical in the sense that we get to see this band perform songs throughout the film um but also in the sense of the, the way the fight scenes kind of break out it's been often referred you know compared to the the musical logic of you know instead of bursting into song they burst into fight yeah, yeah, yeah and yeah. um and then getting to see how each of these uh sort of titular x fights uh come about because each one of the graphic novels is kind of focused on uh, like an X per book. And so naturally the, the book series has more time to breathe. Like the actual story takes place over a couple of years, I think, or at least a few months, whereas the film is condensed way down. And I think it's a really unique case of with adaptations, like most books um, get multiple films, or at least we see the thing of the yeah. final book in a series getting the two films split and all this, but I've never seen it where six books become one movie. Um, and that feels like such a crunch. And it's a sub two hour film as well. And yet I think that's where Wright's uh, pacing and style and editing uh, prowess and all this stuff come in to make it really work. And the way that they condense the main beats of the book into a workable film is really, really fascinating because, you know, it's the basic bones are there. But then there's if you know the graphic novels really well, there's so many tiny moments that are just moved around and happen out of context somewhere else so there's so many bits and i think it's because you know at the time uh when they were writing the movie um the the books were still being done as well so at mm -hmm. a certain point they kind of started being developed at the same time i think i think from book four onwards there's kind of stuff in there where each one's feeding the other in a really interesting symbiotic relationship that you don't yeah. really get to see much like there's i think there's a line that's in the fourth book which came from the rights of the film which ends up in the film Amazing. and then yeah all these little moments that kind of get shifted around that, and it's only really with the fifth book and then the way the whole book series kind of ends does it kind of change a little bit to make it a bit more uh manageable for a modestly budget live action project well you brian leo malley who like kind of unprecedentedly was involved with like mo most kind of comic book adaptations like the creators kind of uh, are well away from it. Do you mm. know what I mean? They're kind of like, they either don't want to be involved or for whatever reason, it would probably be too expensive for them to be involved. But he was kind of involved with the way. And I, I, I was watching a making of like feature on it and he was shown like the design for what Ramona would wear when they're at the Chaos Theatre at the end. And he kind of said to the costume designer, 
oh, that's so Ramona. I'm going to use that in the graphic novel Yeah. Like, when I get to that bit. And it's like amazing. And I love that kind of, yeah, that symbiotic relationship you talk about of how they kind of, I don't know, like they feed each other. And like, I think one of the things I talk about in the kind of design of this film as well is is the way that they're trying to interpret Brian Lee O'Malley's interpretation of the real world because a lot of like the kind of pizza pizza second cup coffee and stuff like mm-hmm. that are all based on real locations but then yeah honest eds adapted into his like like kind of uh drawing style so they're like we're trying to capture those real places but then at the same time like heighten them to match like his and it's like we want second cup to look like second cup did when brian first started writing Mm. the book not how it looks now and i think even down to the stories a lot of it he said the characters i think the you'll probably be able to correct me on this if i'm wrong but um the whole genesis of scott pilgrim came from the fact that brian leo malley's one of his ex-girlfriends had three guys in her past she had dated uh, dated called matt and she just found it he found it really funny like like and he's that's where like the kind of idea of the the evil exes came from i think originally like it was the league of matthews or something like that. yeah well i love the idea of taking something that's quite mundane and something that we can all (laughs) relate to like we all especially when we're younger, maybe have, you know, various dalliances with people and they have baggage and history and there's exes involved. And it's like taking that very universal kind of idea and distilling it down into, you know, this video game logic. Um, And that's what the graphic novels especially get really right, where the the mundanity of just life as an early 20s something person, like whether it's trying to like get a fucking job and like adapt to being outside of like school and stuff and, and going to gigs and and just hanging out with your mates like it it gets the nuance of that really really nicely and then of course can flip on a dime to be obviously very comic booky and anime inspired uh, and video game inspired when it comes to sort of the action and i think that contrast is where so much of the humor comes from um and uh yeah this film knows how to do it and it's like you know i see so many uh comic book and graphic novel properties get picked up these days i mean it's great it's hard to complain because it is a real golden age like right now there's the boys on there's paper girls which i love which i've just finished season one uh which is really good um and invincible i think the the animated amazon show is probably the closest one-to-one comparison we have but then there are there are others i know i i I never saw the why the last man series but i know like walking dead and stuff and and preacher especially ones that kind of maybe well is that one that's or is that coming out oh which one sweet tooth like that was a graphic oh, novel series. Oh, yeah. I think that came out as a film, maybe? Like yeah. a Netflix film? I have no idea. What yeah, that. it's one... But there's a lot of ones out there that kind of either just... Oh, we have a perfectly good story on paper here. Let's just do our own thing. Mm-hmm. And some of the time it's like, I, I get it. TV's a different medium. Tell your own story. But but this is one where um, it's, it's, you know, panel for panel recreations for so much of this. And there's so many Easter eggs packed in everywhere. But it still knows how to adapt its structure and change itself to be a, a sub two hour movie story versus a long running thing. And it's interesting because I guess you could have done, done this as a, as a TV series, maybe not back in 2010, but maybe now you could see this happening yeah. as an animated show or even a live action thing that you could do a, an evil X per season. Um, 
and uh, delve a bit more into the nuances there. But I think, you know, the fact that this works for me, at least uh, as a film, is uh, a miracle. Yeah. I, I, and what I, what, what I found fascinating is Edgar Wright's read on, like, the, the graphic novels was the whole thing feels like it's, like, Scott Pilgrim's Daydreams. Like, mm. I think he captures that. that he, he brings that to the table. I haven't read the, the the graphic novels, but like you get a sense from the film that that is like everything. Is, yeah, is, is is the is the novel very much the not the graphic novel is very much from Scott's perspective, like as much as it is in the film. Uh, yeah, yeah, very much so. There's 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 a, a few of the supporting characters who get more um, characterization and, and arcs just on the basis of it being a six book series. Like there's a whole thing with Stephen Stills that goes on and. And the idea that him and uh, Scott and Ramona are actually dating, like the film kind of makes it seem like if you want to start dating her, you have to beat all her exes. But in the fil- in the books, they kind of do get together early on and it's just them being together. And then every now and then another ex will pop up. So it's more of a kind of long-term thing. So, you know, you're dealing with, with, with like living situations and moving in together and, and, and work and when someone moves away and all this sort of stuff. And, and so you get a bit more of Scott's history as well with... Um, with Kim and everybody. Um, so yeah, there's, there's lots here, but I think the way Egg Wright and Bacall here are able to distill a lot of the, the essence of these characters down. And a lot of that comes from pitch perfect casting and, and performance as well. Yeah. So let's talk about the casting because Edgar Wright kind of, he says it with much glee as well. Like uh, in the making of where he's like, yeah, I cast Anna Kendrick before she signed on to do Twilight. I kind of, I, I cast Aubrey Plaza before she got Parks and Rec, and uh... yeah, you got Brie Larson here. You got Captain Marvel. You got uh, Chris Evans pre Captain America. Uh, like yeah. literally just before as well, right? This yeah. is like the last film he did before Cap- uh, Captain America, which is insane. Yeah, I um. So we talked about this film quite recently on Sunday, but actually, so I'm trying not to completely repeat anecdotes okay. but um yeah i remember stopping by the lesser square premiere of scott pilgrim when it was on like not not going in and seeing it i wasn't that important but i was, <laughs> in, I was literally just in the area so i got to see a lot of them including schwartzman on, on the red carpet which i think was a blue carpet for this if i remember but i remember seeing chris evans up on the balcony part of the empire cinema um lesser square looking out and kind of waving like the regal man he is um and that must have been like yeah august 2010 which i think was the same month i had my first job as an extra which was on captain america the first avenger so he was in the uk literally shooting cap one when scott program had its london premiere so that's how close together they were amazing so yeah and yeah and i guess i don't do you reckon because the filming of this was a long shoot right this was Mm. and from what I gather from the making of as well, that a lot of Chris Evans's stuff was done up front. Like I think the stuff with Luke right, right. Lee, like that was the first fight scene that they filmed. So I imagine that would have been to somewhat accommodate, like, I don't know, him prepping for Captain America, perhaps. I'm not sure. Cause, yeah. Um, well, it had, it had so many years in prep this film anyway. So I think probably by the time they got to shooting, they must have known he was about to go off and do, and do Cap. But that was part of the reason why, like, I was so intrigued by this film when I heard Edgar Wright was doing it before I knew what the hell it was because I remember there was like the odd sort of behind the scenes photo coming out from it and there's a there's a photo I vividly remember of Edgar Wright with his stunt team and he's got like a broken finger or somebody has like at their hand in like a little finger sling and everything kind of like beckoning at the camera 
and I'm going, I thought this was like some sort of drama about like 20 somethings in Canada. Like, why is there a stunt <laughs> team involved? Like before I knew what the hell it was. And then it was just getting so intrigued in these behind the scenes videos of them doing like intensive, like fight training for months. And I was just like, what the fuck is this film? <laughs> yeah. Cause I think, I think like this was around the time Edgar Wright, uh, committed to doing a video like a not a video a photo blog for one mm. year and it kind of charts like a lot of it charts the making of uh, scott pilgrim so like he got all of the cast and crew together on the first day kind of whoever is about to take a photo and he kind of says like oh, i'm gonna take a photo at the end and see how yeah tired everyone is because he, he even said like part way through making the films like this might be my grey hair movie. Like, <laughs> this might be the, the the one to break me. But like, I, I, I find it fascinating because for a film that, so I don't know, there's a lot of um, visual effects and stuff like that, but they, they, they rely a lot on practical as well, wherever they can, right? Yeah, I mean the visual look of this is is amazing, and I think there's I think there's tons of really interesting behind the scenes post featurettes about this on the dvd and stuff of, of how they laid it all in but it is yeah really kind of interestingly subtle cg like there's little touches here and there that i really love like when he gets punched right in the face in the first fight with matthew patel and the big word i think it's like you know big pow or something comes up and then he gets hit a second time and he falls back through the word which kind of shatters into glass on the floor mm -hmm. just really little amazingly intricate moments like that that kind of just embedded in um, and then, like, you know, the aspect ratio shifts and the, and the kapows and all the, the sound design, especially. Um, yeah, it's it's really it's really something. And then, you know, the the whole base fight, base battle with uh, uh, Todd Ingram. Um, yeah, like every one kind of has its own little thing. Because, um, uh -huh. yeah, what would you say? I think I asked this to Daryl on Sunday Eve as well, you know, and, and to Jeanette. Like, what's your uh, favorite Evil X fight out of the ones here? Ah, oh, my favourite. Oh. oh, this was like the question I should be. This is the torturous <laughs> question I normally ask guests. Um, I don't know. I've I've got a lot of time for. I really like the Matthew the the the, the Matthew yeah. Patel one just because it's the like the first one we get, and like up until that point, like it is like an aspect of yeah. That's like what an is this film? Yeah, 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 yeah. And it's I I, I don't know. They're all, and I like that. Obviously, it could be really easy for all of them to be quite samey, but like, there's, there's, it's, it's that fun video game thing, isn't it? Where you find like each each boss has, like, whether it's like a Mario boss or whatever. It's like, oh, or all those ones where you had to find, like, Devil May, Devil May Cry was really mm -hmm. good. At it. You had to find the weak spot, and mm -hmm. that's like kind of what he does here. But it's a in like real world terms where it's like he uses Lucas Lee's ego against himself. Yeah. Like, yeah. Can you back grind the back down of that? Roxy's knee? <laughs> yeah. Or there's the whole, like, um, like making, uh, Todd Ingram, like break vegan edge by kind <laughs> yeah. of like getting into his mind's eye and like really Milk and thinking, eggs, bitch. Yeah. Really thinking <laughs> about the, uh, like the, what he put half and half in and what he put soy milk in and stuff like that to, to throw him off and I, I, I love those aspects of it but i don't know what about you what's your what's your favorite what's your favorite fight yeah i think the first one really does blow me away because again the trailers coming up to this relied quite heavily on 
clips from that first fight and you know the whole the first block and the the counter is like straight out of the comics and the the multi combo in in the air um but that's kind of just the start of it so when when that happened immediately and then we're in thick into the fighting i was like oh wow this is actually going to do a bit more and i remember thinking like surely they're not going to go as far as having him bring out his uh, demon hipster chicks and do the song and then that happened and i was like okay great <laughs> they're, they're doing the whole thing because that was really not shown in any trailers and i was like wow they're doing the whole like fireball attack and everything this is perfect this is that one's just like panel for panel almost entirely so that's great i love the todd one as well the boss the boss battle at uh, base battle um and again, that that sort of thing, like the whole Chris Evans fight, like the 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 fight against all the stuntmen is completely oh. invented for the film, because um, all it is in in the book is essentially the the grind rail. So I just thought, because again, that bit was in the trailer, the the stuntman fight. So I thought, oh, they're probably just gonna do something new here. So the fact that they did that and still did the grind rail death, I was like, great, they really are just hitting every every note here. Uh, I think the only one that's kind of really different is is the twins who get a bit of a short short stick here um but in a way that i really kind of like because in in the book they have this like little robot they bring out and they're kind of fighting all over the place um whereas here it's basically just the battle of the bands fight but i think that's a perfect way to do it and to get us into like the final the final fight i would be really interested to know because i know that um oscar right uh edgar's brother does a lot of like his like storyboarding and kind of uh character design do you know what I mean like a lot mm. of his design work and stuff like that and one of the things I noticed with those like you know those creatures yeah kind of coming you got the dragons and then uh such a great visualization of the literal battle of the bands like fighting yeah. through music waves <laughs> but you get yeah you get those like you get those two dragons come out and then you get that kind of gorilla that like is sex bombs mm. like uh visualization of their 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 angsty music but then I, I i did have a little dive that he also did like some of the design work for tack the block and i was oh, like oh yeah i can see that did he just like kind of tweak that gorilla design for the aliens attack the block and be <laughs> like here you like here you go joe like it's but yeah don't don't look at edgar's movie like <laughs> just uh and you, you saying about that um the the invention of the the fight with all the stuntmen what's really like what i found like really re- quite quite funny about like one of the things is uh uh brian lee o'malley said that he was inspired because like by using that location of the castle because he had seen um like a film being shot there which one of the yeah one of the producers on that film, I can't remember what the film is called off the top of my head, but mm. Mark Platt was a producer on that film who happened to be a producer on Scott Pilgrim as well. So it's like the whole thing has come like <laughs> back full circle in a weird way that like the shooting of a film at that castle inspired that moment from that book and then the film that's yeah 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 yeah. like it kind of all all, all kind of wraps around in a, in a neat way it's all back there it's, it's so good and yeah that whole fight as well that's some of the funniest stuff i mean chris evans in this like i i love the guy like uh we recently covered sunshine on both sun wb and spotlight and uh you know he's a real standout in a really packed cast there and you know for everyone who just sees him as cap i think he's one of the main MCU actors whose work outside of it is just as impressive because you know you can see him be 
the douchebag ass like in this and then like the cocky guy like in Fantastic Four or something. And then he's, you know, he's got his snow piercers and his sunshines. I think he's fantastic. And here he really, from the second he shows up in that kind of trailer on TV for one of his yes. jet films, you're just like, this guy, this fucking guy. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, we, we got a bit derailed on, on, the, on the cast there, but um, let's kind of like rattle through. So Michael Sarah in this, what are you mm. kind of like, obviously as somebody who'd read the book, like read the novel, the graphic novels, were you kind of like waiting with bated breath to see if he captured the essence of Scott Pilgrim in the movie? Yeah, I thought he did really well. And I can see Edgar Wright had this quote about casting Sarah saying that, you know, he needed an actor. The audiences would still follow even when the character's being a bit of an ass. And I think that's right, because this is a really hard character to kind of play, because he is this kind of like weedy, nerdy type character who has, has to be kind of almost illogically great at fighting as well. And uh, I think if you go too far the other way, you might end up with a... Um, speaking of Chris Evans again, sort of like his his weak, small version of from the first cap, someone of that sort of nature doing masses of Kung Fu. And here it's kind of believable in, in that heightened video gamey way. And he's just so good here at kind of being that cocky guy. And, you know, I, I know a lot of people kind of uh, don't like this film because of his character, which I think is completely fair. But I think there's in no way that this film is ever not telling you that they think he's a twat, which... He is. The whole film is about him kind of having to come to some realization and the amount of times every other character surrounding him is constantly telling him he's being a prick is uh, kind of a clue as well. And I think he is able to really embody that. And I think at the time, I remember that must have been quite interesting to see because I would have primarily known him from Arrested Development where, you know, he's not at all this confident kind of like ladies man. (laughs) Well, yeah, what's fascinating about that is that's what they saw that went, oh, Michael Cera would be great, but and like they were like, oh, he's too young. And then the film took so long to make. They're like, mm. oh, he's aged into the role. Like he'll be perfect for it now. Like he's, uh, yeah, he's like, he's now old enough. And I think people had their um, concerns as well. Uh, like you're saying about him not looking the part to be like to do all of this like fighting stuff. Yeah, like, but, I mean, he he looks like the type of guy who would be a bassist in a Canadian band. <laughs> yeah, and, like if and this yeah. was made, if this was made today, like I don't know who his contemporary would be that you'd cast instead now who could nail like the music side, the comedy timing, the fighting. Um, well, I think like, I think he could still do it because he looks exactly the same pretty much. Doesn't he? As much as he's kind of like tried to grow a mustache and stuff like that. He does. He still looks like a kind of 22 year old boy. Like, <laughs> yeah, Michael Cera could still, still rock it as, uh, as Scott Pilgrim. So, yeah. Um, I can see he, here that, Edgar Wright said that Universal suggested Seth Rogen for the part because Knocked oh. Up had just been a big hit. And it's like, I love Seth Rogen, but that's a different kind of thing. No, no, no. Let, let him do the Green Hornet. <laughs> <laughs> let, him do, let him do that adaptation. Um, so, uh, well, yeah, I, one of the things I found with Kieran Culkin in this is, and especially like from watching him in Succession, is is Kieran Culkin just playing Kieran Culkin and stuff? Because he kind of plays this <laughs> snarky, like, kind of wise ass so well in stuff. It's just like, even like watching him in the, the, the making of, like, I think he kind of closes it out by, they must have been doing like, like, you know what I mean? Like, um, talking heads with a green screen. He's like, mm. 
oh, so what are they going to put on this? And like pretends he looks back and goes, oh yeah, that looks great. Like, like, and like <laughs> that is kind of the, the, the energy he brings to this film as Wallace, right? Yeah, no, I love him. Like, you know, every time it cuts and he's, he's been like texting while sleeping. <laughs> it's like, <laughs> Wallace, you gotta be bitch. <laughs> yeah, yeah, he, he's amazing. Um, I guess we've really got to talk about Mary Elizabeth Winstead, who, for, for, for my money, it's kind of like, I don't know, it's Shannon Sossaman, like, kind yeah. of melded into Mary Elizabeth Winstead, right? It's kind of like... Yeah, very much nailed. that era. Like, that 2004 version of Mary Elizabeth Winstead probably would have been a Shannon Sossaman type. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, I always think, like... You you could imagine if this came out, yeah, in the early two thousand, this that would have been Sh- Shannon Sussman like down to a T, right? She yeah, yeah. Just, like walked into. I think for years I thought like I thought it was Sh- uh, Shannon Sussman for some reason. I was like, I was like, it must be. It's just so, it's so much of her energy. Yeah, Wins Wins great here, and you know Ramona's a really tough character because you know in many ways, like deliberately she is playing up that manic pixie dream girl trope. Uh, She's very much, you know, like almost literally like the prize to be won. It's a really hard character to kind of humanize. And I think if any, that she's maybe the one that gets a slight short shrift here, um, but it's kind of brought to such vivid life because of the charisma of Winstead. And and this is one where in the comics, you know, her, her character is allowed to kind of exist a bit more as a separate kind of person. Um, whereas here, because of the blistering kind of pace of everything as well. She's kind of dragged along with it, but you know, I'm, I'm glad they kind of gave her some real standout moments as well. Like you know, the fight, the fight of Roxy. That's probably another one of my favorites, actually. Um, when she's puppeting Scott, in terms yes. of pure like choreography and like pulling out the massive hammer. And again, that's a case of them taking. So in the, in the comics, there's she has a fight with knives in book two in a library, which is what they move to the the pyramid stuff at the end because knives has that same long stripy scarf on of the the dual psi weapons so that gets moved to there um in book three ramona has a fight with envy adams which kind of becomes the hammer fight with roxy in this so again they're moving stuff around and repurposing it all um but yeah i think you know if if anything's going to be the least believable thing in here in terms of uh stretching your suspension of disbelief it's going to be the michael sarah winstead pairing <laughs> yeah there's there's amazing like test footage of uh mary elizabeth winstead where edgar wright's just like directing her of like from behind the camera being like look, mm. look at look at the camera now like the camera said like said something cute and like because she said like she just had to from the comic she realized it's all about like the kind of eyes like Ramona's got these massive eyes and a lot because she's playing that cooler than cool girl it is a lot of like not saying a lot but trying to say stuff with your face and she she really captures that in that kind of first date they have when they're kind of like mm. walking around in the snow and stuff yeah like that. you kind of like get a lot of that and I think like you say yeah she does kind of get a short shrift and she is the prize for the film but I think what she does with that character and kind of her, her facial expressions and her kind of mannerisms really like capture that, which I like. And I, I wanted to ask you about this. How do you think this kind of uh, adds, or does it like kind of poke fun at the manic pixie dream girl kind of archetype? Like, what do you think? Like the kind of not not the intention of the film, but how, how do yeah? How do you think the film plays to that? Yeah, I don't know what the percentage of uh, 
like weaponized Mamet Pixie Dream Girl versus literally just using it as it is used kind of breaks down really. Um, so yeah, you know, the books give her, give her so much more kind of space. And I think that's what it comes down to. The fact that this does feel like it takes place over the course, of like four days or something is a bit kind of breakneck. Um, but, uh, but yeah, Win Win says Gray and the moments she does have kind of either by herself or just with Scott, um, really just give her something to do. And I think this is, this is Winstead kind of coming out of the peak of her breakout as well, following like death proof and diod four and everything. And, uh, yeah, you know, on a cast this stacked, um, I think she's wonderful. So who else in the cast kind of stands out for you? Obviously, we'll get on to a certain spectacle uh, villain <laughs> shortly. Like, uh, any, anyone else? Yeah, Orby Plaza's hilarious. Alison Pill, like, th th these are just sort of the very background, like, group of Friends characters, which is weird to think of now with all these actors who are so great. Like, um, Brandon Routh getting to sort of come back after his, his turn as Superman, because this has probably been the next thing I would have seen him in, uh, and just be this amazing kind of himbo, dumb boy, vegan man, um, yes. having having <laughs> so much fun. And uh, and fantastic to see uh, Mae Whitman as well as Roxy, um, with all her history of Michael Sarah from Arrested Development. So yes, to see yes, them yes, kind yes. of engage in this uh, insane fight scene together. <laughs> her? I love that. It is wonderful. I love Brie Larson in this and the fact that she said she drew a lot of her inspiration from watching the adult movie awards, like just to see how like the, the performers like kind of hold themselves and she mm. said that a lot of them had a lot like, it just seemed like a lot of like vanity and ego. And she just brought that to the character of oh, Natalie or Envy, like mm. that kind of, I don't know, almost Valley girl ish, like whatever mentality, but like, I don't know. You said there's a there's definitely like a uh, a vulnerability to her as well that I think Brie Larson really kind of yeah like, yeah. I mean, at, at the, the time I was I was even though this was really early on in her career, I think I was pretty obsessed with her because of uh, United States of Tara. Do you ever watch that? No, no, no. So this was her Showtime series. It's Tony Collette in Amazing. the lead. It ran for three seasons, I think. And Tony Collette's someone with um, multiple personality disorder which I think has different names now. That's kind of what it was billed as back then. And, and you know, so a real showcase for Colette because she's essentially playing like four or five different different alts of, of her central character. And Brie Larson's the daughter in it. So she's kind of there as like the supporting teenage daughter character. But it was a really good show and she's really great in it. So I think that was just before or around this. Um, so I knew she was great. And then, yeah, I didn't realize she had like a musical career beforehand, but she gets to shine in that sense here with her... Uh, black sheep performance um and i love metric and all the, all the music in this film as well and i've seen metric live a whole bunch of times now and, and every time they i think maybe twice at the times i've seen them they've opened with the black sheep song from this and it does just Amazing. immediately make you feel like you're in the movie it's like yeah oh no <laughs> yeah they, they they had some really like uh like yeah a lot of praise for this film and the fact that <laughs> the thing that they loved about it was that they recreated Lee's palace in how it used to look like mm. when they used to kind of, I think they talk about like sneaking into it through the back door and stuff like that. And they're like, we love that Edgar, like just recreated how Lee's palace used to look like back in the day. Cause I think, I, think, I don't know if they were like on set for it or kind of got to like, kind of probably be a part of the crowd for that show or whatever. Like I imagine, I imagine probably if, yeah, that they probably, I think, broken social scene as well. Mm. Like, but 
Am I right in believing that the Sex Bobom music is written by Beck as well? So yeah, like, yeah. Oh. So Beck kind of created all the Sex Bobom stuff, and it's it's great. Like I really love all the songs that feature in it, and I think for ages there are some other tracks that you can't, you couldn't get on the initial soundtrack release, but you could hear in the background every now and then. It's a track called No Fun. It's not on the soundtrack. You can hear it for a few seconds somewhere, and I think it wasn't until the um, 10th anniversary re-release of the soundtrack like deluxe one where they finally released all the other sex bomb songs but yeah that was all that was all beck i think amazing amazing so um any yeah anyone else on the cast that we've missed that you wanted to to mention before we get to the big man himself um i mean it's it's one of those casts where pretty much everyone in it you can mention which is fantastic there's the guy trying to remember his name He's in um he's in a whole bunch of new girl as well. He's very funny. He's the guy who's at the party who knows everyone. <laughs> yeah, and he gets he gets those great bits as well at the um at the Chaos Theater like yeah. both times when Scott comes in he kind of has like a kind of a really hipster line. He's like, "Oh, the first album's better than the first <laughs> yeah. album." Like, yeah, Nelson, Nelson Franklin, a... yeah, playing yes. Como. He's he's very funny in uh, in New Girl as well. Um but yeah, he can just be someone, <laughs> you know, when Scott just holds up that clearly very badly drawn drawing of Ramona that's riffing on the comic style and be like, no, girl looks like this. And the guy immediately is just like, yes, that's Ramona Flowers. <laughs> yes. What about, what about um, Ellen Wong as Knives Chow? What do you, what do you oh, she's amazing. Yeah. I was thinking what else I'd seen her in recently because it felt like out of everybody who, who, who did and didn't break out after this, she's someone who sort of didn't but should have a lot more. Um, yeah, it's this horror film called The Void from 2016. I rewatched recently. She's in that. She's very good in that. Um, and Glow, of course. Lover and Glow. Yes. Well, let's talk about Jason Schwartzman, who plays our big bad, our seventh and final. G Man uh, is Gideon. <laughs> what, 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 what do we think of our out and out villainous role for Jason Schwartzman here, Matt? It's it's great. He's he's perfectly teased as well. Like you know, you get all these. I mean, that's something Edgar Wright does amazing anyway. Just layering in all these sort of clues to something, and in this, it's the recurring theme of of X's and seven and numbers and symbols and all sorts. And then the you know the G Man tease and everything. And you know, by the time we finally realize who he is when he's watching the Battle of the Bands, it's just like oh. And then his kind of intro scene by uh, his car has that perfectly kind of. Like you say, like a New York hipster guy of just chatting away, chewing gum, acting all the hot shit, and uh, just being a complete prick. Um, and then, especially down to his, you know, his his phone call with Scott from the from the Chaos Theater, prompting uh, Wallace to be like, you know, I take it back. Go finish this guy. <laughs> what a perfect <laughs> <Wait>. asshole. <laughs> well, he, yeah, and there's that, there's that little moment. I kind of, I kind of think like, I only caught it on like a recent rewatch. That was kind of from what like reading like a lot of the trivia about this film is when you see him in the at the crowd at the battle of the bands um he puts his hand up at one point to ramona's face and the ring like glistens green mm. and, like makes i think it's like a sound from like zelda or something <laughs> like that because i know that they a lot of zelda sounds here yeah i know that edgar wright and i love this little fact as well that he he wrote a letter to Nintendo to use those sounds and said, like his kind of key line was that they are like the the uh, like childhood like memories, right? Oh, nursery yeah, rhymes, like, yeah. They're like, yeah, they're like nursery rhymes for this generation. It's kind of like, 
you you slick motherfucker. Do you know what I mean? That's that's the kind of line that gets you stuff, isn't yeah. it? Yeah. Like, well, I mean, the film opens with like the the music jingle from I think the beginning of A Link to the Past, and then you've got the fairy fountain theme in his dream. Um, just the little da 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 da, like discovery noise, and and you've got a sonic ring effect from I think it's when I can't remember who just raises their eyebrows real quickly. Um, yeah, so many great little retro video game sounds nestled in, and yeah, Zelda ones are all over the place. Yeah, I which for a big Zelda guy like me is 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 very nerdy. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> so, yeah, with with uh, with Jason Schwartzman as as the villain, like what, like what, what, what do you think of the kind of like him as imposing? Like, are you, does he seem like a threat in this film? Like, would you like? Do you know what I mean if you're in Scott's position? Like, would... it's it's interesting because he kind of is at first, and then they 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 very deliberately kind of undercut him quite a lot. You know, when he's going like, you know, how long it took for me to put this lead together? Like two hours, and he's just complaining <laughs> about swallowing his gum and uh, just being like really petty. So he, you know, he they set him up as this real powerful kind of record deal club owner and then you realize a lot of it's just kind of a show and he's just a bit of a baby as well and i think that's something schwartzman can really do where he can be somebody with that kind of authority in that world and he's very believable at it and at the same time you could probably chop him down to size quite quickly as well but even then you know by the time he's he's pulling out his digital katana it's like yeah this guy is on and he's actually when you think about it sort of a perfect match for someone like michael Sarah um to have a fight to the death with and I, I like the fact that, like, it, I think it is through the casting of him, and it is that thing of, I don't know, like, the, the story of this film of you always, like, especially when you're young, you make an ex, like, you make, like, your, your girlfriend's ex out to be something, like, whether yeah. they are, like, the hardest man in the world or the most intimidating man in the world, however that may they form, do you know what I mean? Like, oh, they're always, they're going to be better than me, this, that, and the other. And yeah, the way the way they do that undercut with like, yeah, like the line where it's like, "You made me swallow my chewing gum. That's going to be in my stomach tract for seven years." <laughs> like, it is that like he plays this kind of massive man baby. Yeah, but there's so, so many, well. there's so many amazing bits from that. And there was a shot. I think I first saw it. I think it was in not even one of the first trailers, like one of the first TV spots. Like I was literally devouring every bit of marketing I could for this. And there was a shot that they put, I think there was a special TV spot that Edgar Wright put out, which is scored very specifically by a certain remix guy. And it's got that shot where I think it's after he's knocked Scott to the ground for the first time. And there's a slow-mo shot of Gideon sort of whipping back up and his hair flings back and the lighting of like the, the lightsaber like blade in his glasses is there and he's chewing his gum and Ramona walks down beside him. So it's just amazingly well um, put together moment of just like, Oh damn, he's cool. <laughs> and yeah what, what, one of the things as well is like i think wearing the glasses caused him a bit of uh trouble because during the bloopers there's a lot of like him just losing his glasses like during <laughs> the fight scenes uh and him and michael sear as well both both mentioned the fact that they didn't realize like kind of you see all this fast-paced action on screen that how long that stuff like actually takes to film do you know what I mean they're like mm. oh, you see it yeah you see it in movies and like oh, I, bet, I bet that took them like a day and it's like oh no that that fight sequence at the end took them like weeks to film like which is insane right 
Yeah, and I mean, this is it. If they, I mean, I love that whole final end end fight, and and if they had kept to the book, you know, the book goes like cosmically insane. Like, you know, there's a lot more subspace stuff, and Gideon becomes this like giga Gideon, like god beast thing, um, which I can see being like, yeah, maybe we don't turn Jason, lovable Jason Schwartzman, into this like CGI Hulk monster thing. Um, but seeing how they how they did the uh, the gorilla and the dragons, maybe they they could have pulled it off, but. Uh, yeah, it, it kind of allows in, in this instance for the book to go completely in one direction of of scale and ambition, and for the movie to kind of stick its landing its own way. So, do you think, on that regard, that like the end, especially with the fights we've seen beforehand, is this is this last one satisfying, and is it kind of the, or is it more of like a whimper to you? Like, how, how no, I, I love it. I love, I love the, I love the unique setting of of the chaos theater with the pyramid. I love the kind of the do over. You know, we get to see Scott take out all the goons first, and then the first fight where he loses, and then kind of gets brought back to life and goes through it again, and it kind of all speeds up, and then we get, you know, sort of a round two to it all, and then knives showing up, and everybody um, adding in. Like, it's a great kind of combination. I think I, I just, I'm just a real sucker for a really good kind of sword fight, and when it's, you know. A flaming sword that someone pulled out of their chest versus like a, a a digital katana. It's like, yeah, that's uh that's a cool uh pair. And you can tell Schwartzman really did his training. He has that, especially early on, has that really sort of relaxed fighting style where he's kinda like he's got one hand behind his back and he's just doing all these blocks and things and then yeah, by the time he's getting his head kicked in, it's uh <laughs> it's gone the other way. <laughs> yeah, there's a there's another amazing outtake of this where like see within the fight like all of a sudden jason's thoughts are like oh oh my pants have just ripped because obviously like he's he, he's doing all this fighting but he's still dressed like a hipster doofus in like uh <laughs> do you know what I mean in like tight trousers and like the, the blazer and stuff like that um so yeah i it's really got me interested to to, to see the comparisons now between the between the books like i would have read them before but yeah, like I highly recommend. I got enough time, you, I got enough time to hang a, like a bit busy guy. Yeah, <laughs> you can you can do all six in like one setting because you know they're not they they are like little little snippets, little chunks. And again, you start noticing, especially if you know the film very well, you'll start noticing little bits everywhere. So, in the fourth book, the the fight with Roxy involves basically the sword fight we get at the end here with Gideon instead. So there's a moment where they both jump up and slash at each other in the air or i think he's actually fighting her dad um who, who turns up and there's a bit where he kind of lands on like one knee and cockily goes like everything okay back there and that exact moment is in the gideon fight after he does the slash the second time so it's like oh that's from that bit there that's from that bit there but yeah for for the kind of full flavor and i think that's what's great about this ip if you will like it's, it's weird to talk about it as an ip or even a franchise because the entire franchise stuff all came out at once <laughs> yes. so it's like between <laughs> between this the books definitely the soundtracks and the video game as well which kind of is the almost final form of something like this to actually put it in the style format that it's riffing on so much and the game does it so well as well because that's kind of the perfect thing where it's kind of the game of the film but it can now literally use the art style from the books and also the little animation as well as like an animated sort of sort uh, side short film as well. So you get you know if you do all of that, you get the whole the whole spectrum. Amazing, amazing. What what one of the things I love about that final fight as well is is the kind of we get the closure to the to the knives like kind of plot line as well. And we get mm. a nice callback to them playing that kind of ninja dance game that they 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 seem to play when they go on their like <laughs> their, their dates whether it's like yeah 
Scott really getting involved in like the, the first one or like getting decapitated in the second one. But yeah, when it kind of goes into that and like, I remember what, yeah, watch it again. It's like, oh yeah, they're doing that. And it's like, you get the voiceover right. It's like, combo like and stuff like that it's, it's so it's Just seeing so schwartzman's fun. face getting like punched like 20 million times <laughs> yeah <laughs> in like I, freeze I, frame style as well i can only imagine i think like some of the crew touched on this is that like edgar wright had this film kind of edited in his head mm. and like he kind of knew exactly how everything was going to look from get-go because i can only imagine like to kind of visually yeah or to physically do all of this and get this all or even just to like think about it and be like yeah this is how it's gonna look like makes my mind melt do you know what i mean like so to have that all in your head it's like hats off to edgar wright like he's really i don't know it's a i think it's a real shame that this film kind of it's obviously gained a reputation but like at the time just didn't get its well yeah you know for this sort of films would be coming from a major studio as well like i think now it'd be very hard to get something like this that's so kind of unique. I guess maybe something like Everywhere Ever All at Once is maybe the closest kind of comparison in terms of unique style and ambition coming from a sort of studio. But even that, you know, that's not as big as Universal. So I think it would have to be more of an indie thing if this was done today. Um, hopefully not in part, you know, because of the financial failure of this, really. And yeah, it definitely did pick up kind of cult status, but it's been a sort of slow road, I think. Are, are the Daniels like the the predecessor the the the, the, the almost like the 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 the, court, the torch carriers from Edgar Wright? If we can say that, it's yeah, like, I think so. I know uh, I know Edgar Wright loves them. I remember he, I think he was do, moderating like a Q and A with them recently and hanging out with them, just hanging out with them in London when they were over here. So they're obviously pals. Um, obviously sees a kind of kindred spirit there. But yeah, it'd be interesting to see kind of what more what more they do but there's someone who very much feels like they have a style um in the filmmaking in the visuals but also like the thematics and the kind of stories they tell and the way they tell them and the blending of the uh surreal and uh and the really profound um that can be seen across both their films and, and their short work as well um whereas Edgar Wright now I don't know I think I feel like Edgar Wright's kind of maybe the Daniels are kind of picking up the old school Edgar Wright torch because Edgar Wright now between like Baby Driver and Last Night in Soho, still very stylistic, but you wouldn't say in the same way. Like you, you couldn't if you were a fan of Space and you watched Scott Pilgrim vs the World, you'd be like, yeah, that's the same guy. Um, mm-hmm. But if you then watched Last Night in Soho, you might be like, oh well, this is someone doing something a bit different, which is interesting. But yeah, it'd be interesting to see what what he does next and what kind of area of film or, or genre he kind of turns his hand to next, and whether a bit of the old right kind of comes out in it again or whether yeah. he's very much like no i'm trying to do something different now yeah 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 is he gonna do that thing where a band go like oh what we've been doing all these years like diverting from that style that made you love us well we're gonna come back and do a, <laughs> come back and do an album that sounds just like that I, first I, yeah i do think if he does do another film with peg and frost then it'll come back um yes. so it's whether to be seen whether that happens i think some i think they'll do something together at some point again and, and to to that point on the daniel as well i think like this film is like a perfect companion piece to what they they do in that they seem like filmmakers who are very much kind of everything is an influence, whether mm. it is um, video games, YouTube, like kind of like pop culture in general. All of it is kind of, that's the thing I loved about everything everywhere all at once is the fact that it's 
there's no low art there's no high art there just is there's stuff mm-hmm. and it, is, it, it is all valid and it's all beautiful in its own way and it's kind of that's what that's what scott pilgrim does in a way do you know what i mean it has beautiful moments in it but then we'll do like crash jokes it will kind of do anything to kind of dazzle you and like excite you and not in that kind of saccharine or i don't know designed by committee way where it's like how are we going to get the most eyes on this it is kind of this <laughs> thing of like let's capture the frantic and frenetic energy of this comic book like in the best way we can i think it's it's, it's really great yeah, I mean, I'm looking forward to seeing more Brian Lee O'Malley adaptations as well, because I've read his other books. Lost at Sea is really nice. And uh, Seconds, which was the first thing he did after the Scott Pilgrim series finished, which I believe is being done as a film now. Blake Lively's directing, uh, and Edgar Wright is writing the script. So it's all staying in the family. Lovely, lovely, lovely. So any closing thoughts on Scott Pilgrim versus the world before we start to wrap this up, Matt? Uh, no, I mean, it's, it's still a favorite of mine. It's like, it's, it's, it's strange. You know, I come back to it every so often or in, or in this case, a couple of times in quite quick succession. <laughs> and, uh, yeah, there's always parts of it that I, I spot that I've missed before bits that I can just recite off the back of my hand and like, especially all the music as well. Um, yeah, I think it's a really unique ensemble Kung Fu fighting video game musical slacker drama and there's been and i'm kind of glad there wasn't many imitators or at least people trying to recapture this kind of magic because it could have gone any number of ways like people leaning too far into video game style fight scenes in otherwise grounded sort of comedy dramas or uh just straight up kind of ripping off right style when it comes to sort of directing uh actors and ensembles and like i, I guess in that case because it'd be annoying if there'd been a whole slew of imitators after this kind of flopped and then they did a whole lot better. So it's kind of acts, it kind of exists in its own bubble still. Um, and uh, yeah, I look forward to the next rewatch, whenever that shall be. <laughs> it is, it, it is, it is kind of perfect and kind of poetic that it kind of, the film lives in almost this underground band thing where it was like, well, it wasn't appreciated at its time and has kind of since like gained mm. popularity. And like you said, it wasn't like people jumped on the bandwagon and like, I don't know, imitated like, yeah, we'll use that band analogy. Like, oh, you all of a sudden get a thousand bands who sound like that. And then it's like, oh, why is that band really popular over like the guys who originated this sound? Like, etc. Whereas like this, like, I don't know, it's like, will we ever get another scott like scott yeah, yeah. pilgrim like again and it's it, it's nice it's like a a, a a unique gem an uncut gem if you will <laughs> if you will um so as we wrap this up matt i, I will ask you did, did you manage to find any coppola connections within this film has anyone who worked in front or behind the camera worked with the coplas elsewhere oh god no i didn't think of this um you'd think that you'd think there's something out of the amount of people in here but (laughs) scanning through who else is there i mean it's 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 tough to because the cast is also uniformly young like i think outside of brandon routh chris evans and jason schwartzman and then of course the thomas jane uh cameo as well and uh what's his face with him um what's his face uh, the other vegan police guy. Oh, what is? Um, <laughs> um, um, 
Cliff and Collins Jr. Uh, outside of those guys, it's pretty much a uniformly under 25 years old cast, it feels like. Um, so no one's really going to be old enough to have starred in any Francis <laughs> stuff. Um, don't think any of them's really done anything, even with Cage, when you look at it. No, so I can I, 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 can, I can throw you a you few go on. So Michael Cera is in CryptoZoo which is the same director who did My High School is uh, Sinking Into uh-huh, the Sea, uh-huh. so his, his newest film, um, and is in A Very Murray Christmas, which Sophia Coppola directed. Uh, Anna Kendrick is in the Mark uh, Peace Experiment with Jason Schwartzman, and A Simple Favour, which uh, John Schwartzman was the director of photography, uh-huh. um, directed by aforementioned Paul Feig, who uh, seems to have worked with the Coplas quite a lot, I think, directed a few episodes of Bored to Death as well, if I remember correctly. Um, Aubrey Plaza is in Funny People and sleeps with Jason Schwartzman <clears throat> in that film as he plays the asshole kind of uh, roommate to Seth Rogen's character. And she's also in a glimpse inside the mind of Charles Swan III, which is the second directorial work from Roman Coppola. Uh-huh. And Brie Larson uh, is in uh, Between Two Ferns, the movie, as so is Jason Schwartzman, which I imagine <laughs> he did as a favour for his old pal, Zach Galifianakis. Yeah. He was like, yeah, I'll be, I'll, I'll, I'll be in your movie. Let's, like, be really mean to me, as, as, as you are to everyone on Between Two Ferns. So, yeah, they're, they're the... They're the Coppola connections uh, we've got for this episode. So let's let's rate the film, Matt. So what would be the... Uh, yeah, how we do that here? Just in case you're a first-time listener and uh, you've got this far into the episode, is what would be the perfect wine pairing? What, 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 what are we drinking with this film? What kind, of, what kind of wine are we drinking? Oh, God, I don't know if wine goes with this one. It would have to be... Uh shots of something in the back of some dive bar while uh, a support act band is is playing up front or some very i take or like a can of uh, red stripe beer uh whilst waiting uh at a gig venue for sure <laughs> just a, just a, a yeah. bucket full of that <laughs> you, you've paid you've paid five pound for a can yes you're grateful for it you know I mean? yeah and you, you you found an american red cup to pour it in like at the house party uh as well Amazing. That or that, that that would be a perfect pairing or two gin and tonics. Yes. Well it has to be some kind of pretentious wine that they'd serve at the Chaos Theatre. Something that fits in there. That would be served yes. on a tray. That he knocks out of that like guy's that. hand. <laughs> I like that. Yeah, 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 yeah. Or yeah. Or, or or a Coke Zero, which is uh, yeah. is that is that is that Scott's drinker choice? Uh, <laughs> I think Gideon calls him out for it. So um how much how much are we paying for this red stripe? Obviously we've we've uh, joked that it would be five pound at a bar but is this uh, let, let, let's take it to the supermarket is this bottom shelf middle shelf or top shelf booze for this well i think the beer is bottom shelf but the movie is top shelf <laughs> perfect 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 we're going yeah yeah we're going on the budget of scott pilgrim yeah. the movie is top i think i think this is yeah i have to agree with you on that like i sometimes stay a little bit agnostic with giving my opinion but I, i'm trying to get better at kind of saying what mm. i would think of this as well I it's, it's all you'd be able to recordings. afford from the returns of the box office <laughs> <laughs> um yeah i definitely think this is a, a top shelf film like 
it's massively rewatchable, right? It's kind of like I, I, I don't know. Like, I think I heard you guys talk about it on Southern Double Deep, and was like, oh, yeah, I really want to watch that again. And then like, I was putting together Schwartzman somewhere. I was like, I kind of really want to watch Scott Pilgrim versus the World again. Should I like? Should I ask Matt if he wants to do that film? <laughs> That's going on. That's it. And then you know, and how many other films is uh, Schwartzman? out as as outright a villain as this you know you could say you know even max fisher's like a, another little prick kind of guy but in terms of like big bad like he's not going to be um the main baddie in like uh like an mission impossible series or something as much as i would like to see that actually as the kind of mastermind uh ordering the, the goons around um oh, but yeah we're still yet to find out the full cast from uh, Dead Reckoning Part Two. They've got <laughs> they've got Nick Offerman in there. Stranger things could happen. Jason, Swart- <laughs> but we're gonna see Jason Schwartzman at least voice the villain in Across the Spider Verse. So that is that. I I, I I look forward to seeing him flex his villain muscle once again in that. So, uh, uh, I well, I'd, I'll tell you what you answered last time based on Ed Wood, but based on uh, Scott Pilgrim versus the World. Are the Coppolas the greatest film family of all time? Uh, yeah. <laughs> perfect, perfect. You, you answered yes last time. So two, <laughs> if I said no now, two. it's like, well, which is it, man? Which is we're it? We're two for two. No, no, no. It's based on this film alone. Um, so I'll ask you this one again and see if, see if your uh, answer has changed since, since this time last year. Which Coppola family member would you keep? But in doing so, you get rid of the entire rest of the family's filmography. I remember I did say Jason Schwartzman last time, didn't I? I think because of my affinity for him, and I think I'm going to keep the same answer. And in the in, in the spirit of Schwartzman's summer, I've just remembered that me and him actually share a birthday, June 26th. Different years, but June 26th is uh, me and Schwartzman's. We're summer boys, you see. We're summer babies. <laughs> ah, yeah, yeah, amazing, perfect guest. Perfect. Every every time it comes up, I always remember because every time. June twenty sixth comes along. You do that thing where you go on IMDb or whatever and see whose birthday it is. It's always Schwartzman, Paul Thomas Anderson, and Aubrey Plaza. I think so. I've got two. I've got two of the guys in this. Amazing. I think. I think the notable ones for me uh, are William Shatner and the, the late great Stephen Sondheim. Are like two of the ones that like. I was like, oh, that's a dinner party. That's isn't nice. It? <laughs> <laughs> um, so uh, last time, I think your 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 answer to this next question was very topical. So let, let's see if it's changed. Do you want to go a bit more heartfelt or you just want to crack another joke? Uh, it's the most important question on the pod, Matt. Mm-hmm. What does Bill Murray say to Scarlett Johansson at the end of Lost in Translation? Release the Batgirl cut. <laughs> <laughs> None more topical. <laughs> Perfect, Matt. Well, on that note, where can people find you? Obviously, you're across a lot of places, but... Uh, what are, what places are you across and where can we find you on those places? Yeah, come come to me on Twitter, Matt, at MattBrothers2. That's kind of the central hub for all things me. And then pod-wise, yes, I'm across Spotlight, at Spotlight Pod on Twitter um, with my boys, uh, Liam and Paul. We cover all things Star Trek from a non-Trekkie perspective. Um, I'm with Daryl and Jeanette over on Sun Double Deep where we watch uh, three films linked by a word in the title. Um, and of course, I'm over at Is Paul Dano Okay, which, uh, as mentioned, is is briefly transforming into Greer's um, for this new season, hopefully starting sometime in September, uh, for another run of eight or so films with a Judy Greer focus before we 
decamp and pray that the Fablemans gets a timely UK release. <laughs> lovely, lovely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, let, well, let's hope it gets a. Let's hope it gets a. I, I think, like your fingers crossed for that getting a a, a London Film Festival premiere. I'm really fingers crossed for uh, Butcher's Crossing, the new. Oh Nicholas yes, Cage nice. Film. Is that the one where he was? Was it the Hollywood Reporter roundtables where he was telling that great story about a horse? Yeah, Jonathan Majors knew the horse. Yes, and he's like, <laughs> that horse was an asshole to me, man. <laughs> yeah, Jonathan Majors was like, kind of like, must be some kind of horse whisperer. It was like, oh yeah, me and that horse go back years. Like, <laughs> okay, John, like, slow your roll a bit, mate. <laughs> so that's that film, is it? What's it called? Butcher's Crossing. Oh, yeah, man. I'm currently just about to dive into the book. Apparently, it's a, a really like renowned book by John Williams. So, uh, little book recommendation for people as well mm. before, before watching that before watching that film um so matt thanks once again for coming and making some copula connections with me thank you so much for having me man it's been amazing And there we go, ladies and gentlemen. Episode 48 is in the biggie, 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 biggie bank. Uh, thank you once again to Matt Brothers for coming and joining me. And thank you so much for you guys for listening. And if you're not across all of the podcasts that Matt is on, then what the hell are you doing? Um, both Sudden Double Deep, Spotlight and Is Paul Dano Okay?, are kind of always in my regular rotation of podcasts that I listen to. Dave release, I'm always there. They're they're lots of fun, and Matt is uh, as you've just heard, it's a fountain of knowledge when it comes to films. Um, and yeah, it was a, a joy to have him on for this one, seeing as he has such a a wealth of knowledge in regards to the kind of Scott Pilgrim universe, as it were, throughout all mediums. So yeah, what a what an absolute. Uh, banger of a guest it's always 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 great when people have um this expert knowledge and that's kind of what i strive for here on this old here podcast is people are passionate about the films we're talking about sometimes i might not necessarily be uh but sometimes their passion brings out my passion for the film i kind of look at it through their eyes and it's kind of interesting i don't know i try not to be negative about stuff on this podcast but then sometimes you gotta be right it's something's bad you gotta say they're bad so uh yeah this one was a lot of fun um i'm sure you've probably voiced your opinion about scott pilgrim versus the world uh, on socials if you have an opinion about this film but let us know let us know what you thought about our chat did we miss anything is there is there a point about the film that you really enjoy that we happen to miss is there did we say anything that kind of enlightened you on anything or um have, have you watched the behind the scenes documentary just like i have as well and you're kind of listening to this going yeah 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 yeah. we get it we get it we get it we've all watched that um but if you do want to get in touch as i said up front on this episode please do so at caged in pod on facebook twitter instagram letterbox and tiktok or you can drop me an email which is always lovely and nice and that is cagedinpod at gmail.com um i haven't really had any emails for a while send an email just um 
Is there any Marvel film that you want to see coming up in the future? Obviously, there's look through the back catalogue. What's missing? What would you like to hear an episode on? I'm probably sure I've got a guest lined up for it. I've got what, about 30-something guests lined up for episodes. I just need the time to to, to, to get through them all. Uh, that, that's it. I've um, made a hard-line rule for myself that I will not be taking on any new guests until i have uh got through this list so yeah expect the next 30 something episodes um to be guests that i already have lined up as well so uh next week on the podcast let's talk about next week i will be talking to alex glinston all about the 2009 Wes Anderson stop motion animated roll doll adaptation, The Fantastic Mr. Fox, which uh, Jason Schwartzman plays Ash, the Fantastic Mr. Fox's son, in a great uh, voice turn in that film. So I look forward to having that conversation, which I haven't had yet, uh, time of record, but I'm sure it'll be fun because I absolutely adore that film. Uh, and I'm sure you'll enjoy that conversation when it is upon your ears. So if you've enjoyed this episode or any other episode of the podcast, please don't hesitate to head on over to Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you're listening to this right now and leave a five-star rating and review. Uh, But remember to in your review let me know what does bill murray say to scott johansson at the end of lost in translation or for schwartzman summer let me know what's your favorite jason schwartzman film i would love to know <laughs> and if yeah uh, if, if that's not enough for you if you really want to support the podcast you want to part with some money you can head on over to patreon.com forward slash caged in pod where for as little as one pound a month one dollar a month you can support this podcast just chucking a bit of money in the in the hat or a little bit more, £2.50. You can get access to our limit, uh, our series where we're looking at every single film directed by the one, the only, Brian De Palma in uh, the movie Brat Bros tier, which is a lot of fun. It's kind of been on the back burner at the moment, but I vow to get that back up and running in no time promises 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 but it will happen i promise you so as always guys i have been petros pat syllabus your guide through the crazy world the coppola family tree remember to come join us next week we'll be we'll be getting fantastic we'll be getting foxy We'll be digging warrens, we'll be getting up to hijinks, we'll be stealing chickens and all other types of fun to make another Coppola connection. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince, they exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. 
Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. This podcast is presented by the Breadcrumbs Collective, home of the Pod Charles Cinecast, Caged In Coppola Connections, A Drip Town Limery, Maine, Franchised, and many more to come. Our shows are all presented ad free and made possible by listeners like you. Please support our shows by subscribing, leaving ratings and reviews, and becoming patrons at patreon.com. If you'd like to learn more about Breadcrumbs, head over to breadcrumbscollective.com. Breadcrumbs, it's more than a podcast network. It's family.